Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell. Uh, back to remote recordings. We've got some uh, cool stuff going in the pipeline here in the next uh, next few weeks. And uh, also, if you haven't checked out my new podcast, A440, uh, definitely check that out. Uh, links through it uh, on all of the uh, socials and all that. But uh, and you can find us at a440podcast.com. But today on Shift Drink, I've got none other than the legendary Charles Jolie. Uh, the accolades are huge. Um, welcome to the show, Charles. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, man. It's good to see you. I mean, I'm I'm not even kidding because like it's been a little while since I've seen you, and so I went through to like do proper notes because we actually lined this up a little bit ago, and I just gave up after a while on the sentence of like accolades for the intros, like James Beard Award winner, official bartender of the Oscars, musician, vintage watch enthusiast, television personality, founder of Craft House Craft House Cocktails, w- hobby carpenter. <laughs> yeah, I love that one. That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> it's just part of growing up on the south side of chicago you pick stuff yourself even if you can uh, pay somebody to do it for right you. <laughs> right 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 well i think that's part of restaurants anyhow right i mean it, you've, it sure you're is, always yeah. paying somebody else to do stuff and you you kind of learn it and i i do wish that i was when i was younger i would have paid more attention to my father when he was trying to teach me you know those uh repair it yourself and do it yourself projects because now i have to learn everything on youtube I, I grew up with my grandparents, so definitely that was the do-it-yourself generation. But um, you're absolutely right. I've I, I used a I used a uh, YouTube video during quarantine. Uh, I felt like it was my one of my favorite quarantine badges, and I fully disassembled my washer and dryer uh, to uh, to do repairs on them. And I was like, "Hey, this YouTube video worked!" And everything. I only ended up with like two extra screws, and I didn't know where they went. At the end of it. <laughs> That's funny. I I mean, I am a uh, same boat, right? Uh, I think everybody, you know, I, if you if you didn't learn something, a new skill during, you know, the shelter in place orders, you know, you're kind of doing it wrong. I think everybody learned a little bit of something, saw a lot of, you know, bread baking in the early uh, days. But, you know, I'm I'm into pastry anyway. So that stuff wasn't new. But uh, I delved into car engines and uh, was able to like I started playing with my wife's brand new Fiat, changing out parts to performance racing parts and it's like, man, I hope I don't fuck anything up. <laughs> you get some- yeah, no doubt. I'm sure she was. Uh, no, she, I mean, maybe it got you out of the house, so she'd rather have you screw the car up than burning down the kitchen. Yeah, but- not even kidding. It started with I, the rabbit hole started with how do combust internal combustion engines work, and then three months later, I'm like, hold on, I think I got this. I'm tearing some shit apart. <laughs> it's oh not- my gosh! But you know, nothing broke. Everything's still working, and it was it was uh, changing her turbocharger. But so. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we learned some new stuff and you have got a job, I guess, um, you know, you work for yourself, you're all over the place and it's certainly not been a great year or last, last year, um, you know, 2020 to heading into 21, um, you know, for travel, all those sorts of things that are really ingrained in, in what it is that you do. Um, you know, in fact, I was just thinking last time I think I saw you in person was, uh, a most embarrassing evening for myself at world-class in DC, um, when I was told it was a very casual after party and I showed up and you guys were on Texas and I'd been at Espita for 10 hours and was sloshed. And the first person I saw when I walked in, I remember seeing you, I was like, Charles fucking Jolie. Hey man, you can dress us up, but you know, it's uh, <laughs> right, right. It's the same. It's the, the tie, the tie and jacket, smoke and mirrors. Uh, <laughs> right. 
covered in about an inch of dust as well in my closet right now. So. Well, you know, you say um, that, but I do kind of want to go back a little bit for, you know, we see you a lot in interviews, but it, a lot of times it's the kind of, uh, a lot of shows that bartenders or hospitality professionals don't catch because they're very early morning. You've done, you know, TV spots for, you know, I'm like, I don't know, like morning shows. I, again, I'm not awake. I don't know what they're called. Today's show? Is that a morning show? I don't know. But you're, you're oftentimes, you know, talking about the big events, the, you know, they get a lot of attention in Hollywood, those sorts of things. But, you know, you've done a lot of things within our industry that are even more impressive, you know? And it's just so niche, I think, outside of our business. A lot of people were like, aviary what's that you know i mean is that a bar like what's it like you know you say oscars and they're like whoa wow you know um so i mean like i want to go back to the beginning of your career because you know you're not old um how old are you at this point uh fuck uh yeah i know i had to do that today 40, uh 44 40, oh, right so we're exactly the same age yeah right on man so yeah right i mean it, we, we're not old and not only that but you back it up to like you know when craft cocktails really started having a comeback during our career <laughs> you know I mean, in the 90s, it was, you know, pre-mix and, and you know, vodka and, and shots that you didn't even know what were in. And, you know, how do, how do you go from that to where you where you kind of ended up? Because it was a pretty fast breakneck speed um, as that as your career took off. So, I mean, where did you get started in bars and, and realize that you wanted to do this? Yeah, I think, you know, well, I, I think the it, it was a, a fast 15 year uh <laughs> yeah, overnight sensation. Ascension, perhaps I think in a lot of times that's the way it goes. It's like it's like musicians, uh, you know, who finally have a uh, a song or an album that breaks, and uh, you're like, oh, these guys like over, you know, they they showed up overnight, and you're like, oh, we actually got six albums before the one that you heard about, you know. Uh, and I think my career is probably a lot like that. I mean, because it was, you know, it goes back to uh, the late late nineties. Uh, when I first got into the bargain and, uh, you know, started off, I mean, you're right. There's zero, there's zero cocktail scene at that point. So there wasn't even a thought at that, at that time in my career, there's no, you know, there's no, there's no cocktail scene in the U S until, I don't know, 2005, maybe, uh, you know, like when, when, and you're talking about really focused in New York and, and maybe a spot in SF and maybe, you know, just some, some whispers of it happening. Um, and it's starting to bubble in London and places like that. So, you know, for the whole first 10 years of my career were based on um, high volume places, neighborhood places. I, I was, I mean, it was a bar back for several years uh, before I ever was able to make a cocktail uh, and when I started making cocktails, it was at volume neighborhood places and, uh, um, you know, bars where you learn the skills that are far more important than how to make cocktails. Like how to make cocktails is a technical skill. You know, that's something that it's like learning how to make a repair an engine to an extent. You need to have a knack for it for sure. But you can learn that skill. We can teach someone. But like just the, just the intangibles um, that we learned during those those early years, you know, working fast, working efficiently. Uh, dealing with crazy situations, you know, dealing with guests, dealing with the personalities of your uh, your coworkers, uh, and, and just you know, it, it, it defines whether or not you're going to make it in hospitality. Um, whether or not you have the personality to deal with constant curveballs, putting out fires on, on the daily. Some people like stability. Uh, I need newness, and, and I need that challenge, or else I'll get very bored very quickly. Why uh, I've stuck around for you know twenty no shit twenty four years in the, in the business. Yeah, we always talk about that. My business partner and I, because 
you know, in the 90s, we were working at a, a, a Buffalo Wild Wings before they kind of grew out to the, where they are. But it, they were more or less all treated as like independent local bars at that point. And it was just a sports bar. And but but now, you know, obviously we're in a much different segment of the industry and people come in and kind of sheepishly give us resumes sometimes. They're like, well, I've never worked at a craft place, but I mean, I'm, I'm working at Fridays or this. And we're like, fucking great. That's awesome, because that means you can follow the structure that we're going to teach you how to break. But like you, you know, like you said, that's a sentiment of everybody in any, any, any hospitality professional. That's, that's the sentiment. We all would rather have a green, uh, someone new to the industry who has the right attitude and then mold them in our image, you know, so we can, <laughs> we can, we can, we can, you know, like as people always say, you're not breaking somebody else's bad habits. So, I mean, that's a you know, word to young bartenders. Like, don't ever, people are always like, how do I get, you know, what books should I read? What should I do? I'm like, yeah, you can find some blogs and books and everything else you can learn. And that's great to get to that. But that's, that's learning. That's easy. That's going to come over time. I'm like, get the right attitude. Make sure this is something you want to do. Make sure, you know, make sure you want to be in front of people. Make sure you want to work to crazy hours. Make sure you want your fucking back to be sore, you know. It's great. So I love that. I would not trade my my early beginnings. Um, I mean, I bar back for three or four years before I ever got to go as a bartender. And I was in, um, I actually just saw the guy who gave me my first bar job, which was a, uh, a kid I went to high school with. And I got my first bar job on accident, like so many people um, went into this cr like crazy underground nightclub in, in Chicago in the late 90s. Uh, we're kind of like the tail end of the rave scene there. And, uh, you know, not like nightclubs today. There's no bottle service at this point. I mean, it's really, you go to worship the DJ, everyone's like there to dance. Everyone's there to, to, to you know, the party. Uh, it's not about being seen. You can't see anybody. It's pitch black in there. You know, you can, you can see three in front of your face. Uh, and I bumped into him and had to be, I don't know, one o'clock in the morning as a 5 a.m. bar. I'm like, Cliff, I need a job. I'm home from college. You know, I'm like, you got, like, any guys need any help here? And I went to the bar back room, which is this walk-in cooler uh, that was like ramshackle built together. And like on some beer cases scribbled out uh, this, this application, you know. And I mean, I actually have a memory, which is unbelievable, of, of writing out that application and like being like, wow, I... I I have pretty good penmanship actually, and this is hieroglyphics. Uh, and got the call, man, and like it stumbled into my first bar job and never looked back. Got thrown right into the fire, man. That place was, uh, you know, we'd see a couple thousand people a night. Uh, I was a, I was a barbacker, like I said, and we had a team of twelve barbacks running. And, and if you, you know, people in the industry, they're like, "Wow, there's a lot of barbacks <laughs> to run a, to run a room." For people outside of the industry, you might have two or three barbacks uh, operating uh, a busy bar. Um, so to have have a dozen uh, guys and, and and girls as well, uh, we had a couple of girls who were part of the team, uh, which is, is you don't see very often, especially in that era um, and the barback crew. Um, and uh, yeah, I ended up being the head barback of that. You know, I mean, just just nut, nuts nights. And, uh, and I definitely cut my teeth, uh, at, at a, at the right place early on and, and fell in love with it. But man, you're like, you know, years down the line though, you know, I ended up, uh, I ended up working for this little local bar group in Chicago and, uh, worked my way up. They gave me my first bartending job. Uh, and, uh, they were, they were owner managed, uh, and, uh, I ended up being the first general manager they ever hired outside of them working for themselves. Just basically, I basically complained my way up the ladder you know because i can't leave well enough alone i'm like why are we doing this this is 
this is dumb. This is causing you know, we can make more money and it will be faster and more efficient. And the guests will be happier if we do it this way. They're like, let's try to set up with a suggestion. So let's put them in charge of, you know, now you're the head bar back. Now you're the manager. Now you're the GM. Now you're the operations director. Um, and so, yeah, I worked my way up the ladder with that. And then, and then we accidentally, accidentally opened a fucking cocktail bar. And uh, about in like 2007, uh, 100%, 100% on accident, um, we, we, we intended to open a cocktail bar, but we had no idea that there was going to be a cocktail movement that was just, you know, under the surface and about to sprout uh, and was the timing and the concept um, were just in the right place for, um, you know, for me to get the mic uh, a lot of the time because there weren't that many people in Chicago doing it. Um, and, and so when, you know, people were talking about this new cocktail trend that was emerging, there's only a few of us to call. So I was, uh, you know, as, as much as there weren't that many people to, uh, look to for, for advice, I had a few really key people. I had a great mentor, uh, in a, in a woman named Bridget Albert, um, who was running this little, little spirits academy, uh, that she was doing just out of, out of, you know, for, 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 you know, out of passion, she wasn't, wasn't doing, she had another job working for a liquor distributor. Um, and, uh, and we, we just kind of, you know, figured it out as we went along, uh, you know, looked, dug through old cocktail books, like the blogs weren't written yet. Not many of the books were in, you know, some of the key guys had written books, uh, you know, Dale DeGroff and Gary Reagan and, and guys like that had written their books. And so those are like, you know, they're sitting here on myself behind me. Uh, yeah, no, I was just thinking when you said that, I was thinking, you know, of course we're on Zoom. So, you know, it's a, practically a requirement that you sit in front of bookshelves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's behind me. Like, all of these, yeah, like all of these books are cocktail books. And like you're talking, yeah. about, I remember that. Like I was, there were like seven. Yeah, you know, like yeah, you, there really were yeah, yeah, yeah. the exact same books, and, and it was like it, the original Star Wars, man. Like when Star Wars came out, there were seven action figures you can buy, and that was it. People couldn't even imagine. Like now, everything's branded. Yeah, exactly. We all had the same seven action figures for Star Wars the first time around in the seventies, and uh, yeah, and everybody had to like we're going off the same seven cocktail books, so we were all doing stuff similarly. Luckily, those seven were awesome and, and from some really great bartenders. <laughs> well, that was a, I mean, oh seven. You're you're right. I mean, it was other than just like even a sprinkling in New York and San Francisco, where it never really like completely died off. But yeah, uh, I mean that would that's just like ideal timing, especially if you were like ramping up your career at yeah. that time. Um, because it, it is a situation where you could complain your way into positions that maybe you weren't, uh, didn't even realize existed at that point. Well, I mean, we were, we, I mean, talk, I'll, tell, I'll tell you how little we knew about what we were doing. I remember my first cocktail and it was far, it was called the drawing room and it was down on rush street in Chicago, um, uh, right downtown. Uh, and so a, a good location if you were visiting, cause you're, you're, you're in the, uh, the gold coast, it was called. And it was like, Oh, you guys, you guys open a speakeasy. Because uh, we were in the basement. It's like, no, you know how expensive real estate is to rent in the Gold Coast? Like, the only thing we could afford was half of the basement of uh, the Urban Outfitters next door. And so there's just a steel security door on the street. <laughs> and, and it didn't even, like, it didn't even have a stairwell at first. For some, they just had a door that was, like, that went to nowhere, literally went to nowhere. We installed the staircase down. Uh, and we turned what was a storeroom into uh, into a bar. Uh, but and I mean, we did. We were doing table side bartending. I designed these bar carts where we, because our bar was only eight feet wide, it was a tiny bar. 
uh, super labor intensive. Like we batched nothing. We did everything on the minute um, just because nobody was batching anything at that time. We didn't even know, you know, where, and it was kind of about, we were, we were really having to teach people about craft cocktails. None of our guests knew anything about them. Uh, and so we, these bar carts would roll them right up to every table. And, you know, one of our bartenders would swing out from behind the bar and roll it over and have everything on there to execute our whole cocktail menu. People loved it. Uh, you know, it was a great show. And uh, we learned a lot. Uh, I mean, just the, the labor that went into our first cocktail menu, we certainly learned uh, how to how to make it a little bit quicker. But I'm saying, you know, like whole, the brandy crusta garnishes cut a la minute, you know, with an entire lemon peel that was going to go in the mouth of the wine glass that you would pour the cocktail through. It's like the garnish took four and a half minutes to cut properly, you know. So we figured some things out very quickly, but um, it was cool. I think the uh, the the ignorance is bliss moment of us being so early on, we could be really lawless with it because there was no everything was news. You know, you couldn't go like there was no there wasn't good ginger beer that you could buy. There wasn't good tonic that you could buy. There were no bitters outside of Peychaud and Angostura. So we had to make all that shit ourselves. Um, and not to be cute or not to do extra work because I'm all about, hey, if there's something good on the market and you can support a small brand and buy an ingredient that's good and does a job for you, spend your time in other more effective ways than you know re, re, remaking Coca-Cola. That's cool. I'll buy some Mexican Coca-Cola in glass bottles if I want to make up a Tonga or something like that. I'm never going to make... A cola that's better than that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I I mean I talk about that all the time with my wife as far as you know, I'm a <laughs> I'm 44 now, so now I'm doing things like urban gardening. But uh, you know, she's like, oh I'll grow some green onions. I'm like, why? They use so many beautiful organic and they cost like 25 cents, 50 cents. You know, I'd rather put my time and energy into something that can't get, like you know, like uh, you know, Thai limes or something. But you know, and it's you're talking about doing all these, you know, kind of four minute garnishes and this insane like uh, labor put into it. But, um, you know, it's the process. And at that time we were educating not only ourselves, but educating our guests as to th th this can be an experience. It just have to be like a shot. You don't have to come in and get a boilermaker or just do shots or, you know, uh, get drunk for the sake of getting drunk. You know, that's awesome. And that, and that is, this is, you see it in every single city and I've seen it blossom around the world. Um, there's the exact same flow of events. And, and the first bar to open up in a city, the first cocktail bar to open up in a city is always almost some sort of speakeasy, old school, emulating really stuffy rules, all this shit, because this is what the first guys in London did. It's the first bars in New York. They had to. And, and to people now, they're like, oh, cocktail bars don't need to be that stuffy. Mm -hmm. They had to be in 2005. Absolutely. I've said that so many times. And yeah, uh, sometimes they're coming from a such a dark place. Like it was, you know, the, the expectation was we spent five years just explaining to people that, no, the drinks weren't going to be sweet because the decade prior was were such sugar bombs of cocktails and teenies and, and sour mix on guns that People now that have been spoiled by the last decade plus of the cocktail movement don't realize it was it was not long ago that, that the expectation was, I mean, you couldn't get fresh juice in a bar. You couldn't get simple syrup in a bar. I mean, you couldn't, you know, you, like there weren't, you weren't getting a Negroni because there was no Campari. People look at you like you were crazy unless you were in an Italian restaurant. Um, 10 years ago, 12 years right, ago. Yeah, yeah, not even that long. Right? You know, I, I, I would just uh, about a year and a half ago I was in Bangkok and it's interesting because you know, in, in 2006 and 2007 here in the United States, I wasn't really plugged into that part of the scene. I was still, uh, well, I was actually finishing my journalism degree at that time and um, wasn't really paying attention to the cocktail scene. And I didn't get to 
see it happen in real time until really like 08, I guess. 08 is when I started paying attention, which is still pretty early on, I guess. Um, I, and I'm very proud that Indianapolis, like, I mean, we started, uh, we were in pretty quick for a city that is usually a decade behind. Uh, we had craft cocktail bars opening very early on, like Ball and Biscuit and Libertine and Thunderbird. Yeah, I love Indianapolis, and uh, I think it's a sleeper city, uh, and uh, it's an you know unsung unsung market. I actually did a a series of uh, I wrote a series of little articles uh, that my whole focus was just that on unsung cities that were because I saw Chicago not get the press that it deserved because we were getting full because all the, all the reporters live in New York or LA. So it was just by, you know, nobody's ignoring you, but people write about places they've been and the places they know. And so the same, you know, five cocktail bars in New York were getting all the press. And I'm like, man, if there's anything I can do to give these unsung markets some, some love. And so I, it was a short series. I did one in Madison, Wisconsin. I did, I did one on a trip to Oahu. Um, and, and, uh, you know, why like just totally overlooked for their, what they do in cocktails, but it's, it is there when you look beyond them. And I did, you know, dive bars and everything, but I did Indianapolis and, um, my, I I just looked back at that piece and, uh, Indianapolis took me two trips because the first trip I went down and had so much fun. I (laughs) I only made it to a couple of bars. And so I didn't get enough material to write. And and I was there having a good time and I knew I had to write this piece. And I was like, ah, shit, I'll come back. Cause yeah, it's only only a few hour drive from Chicago. Um, And uh, I'm like, all right. So I, I, yeah, I got, I I opened that piece by saying something like Indianapolis, you know, you got too much rock for one hand. It took me two trips to uh, sit down here to write this damn article. Um, But yeah, like we went, like did, you know, uh, Ball and Biscuit and we went to Thunderbird back, uh, you know, uh, uh, at that time. I didn't make it, still didn't make the Libertine. I don't remember what happened on that, on that particular trip, but we we had a bunch of great dive bars and uh, Indianapolis is actually, it's, yeah, it's, it's a great, a great city that doesn't get enough love. Yeah, and being able to watch that happen here was, was really fantastic. But again, you know, I kind of missed seeing it in the big cities and like the real. Uh, I guess by that point we had we had people to refer to. You know, uh, by the time our scene was, we, we uh, gosh, I'm trying to think. I guess Libertine was probably Libertine or Ball and Biscuit were the first two, and they opened, I believe, in 2010. Uh, well, right, yeah, because uh, my restaurant Black Market opened right around the same time, but. Um, we had guys like you to kind of look towards um, that, you know, would kind of make it a little bit of a name for yourself in Chicago. Then, of course, you know, PDT in New York uh, and, and San Francisco, uh, some of the old school bars. But like when I went to Asia uh, and right before the pandemic, I uh, spent uh, like five weeks in Bangkok and it's just starting. And it's exactly what you just said about like, we didn't want to necessarily be a speakeasy, but it's the only thing we could fucking afford. And we're seeing that. Um, kind of repeat itself in numerous cities across the globe, but I, I was there for the longest and just everything's a speakeasy uh, by necessity because all of the uh, prime high foot traffic areas are just beer and shot bars and they're trying to you know print money. And so they're in closets or they're in downtrodden neighborhoods, things like that. And uh, there's really only a handful of them of fanatics that are willing to make very little money uh, to make sure that they can kind of educate people that as you know, particularly in, in, uh, a culture that <laughs> where alcohol is very much demonized, but, uh, I'll have to do a whole ever, a whole opposite or a different episode on that. Um, cause one of my past guests is actually fighting the Thai government pretty, pretty, uh, vehemently on their liquor laws these days because of, uh, yeah, because there's so much of it's like rooted in, in Buddhist and religious laws that they have very archaic liquor laws in Thailand. And, uh, he actually ended up getting either in 
he at least got in trouble. I believe he may have been arrested for doing a cocktail delivery during the pandemic. Uh, wow. <laughs> I, 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 was, I was with uh, some bartenders in Thailand and we ended up, I don't know if you, you caught like the kind of bars on the rolling carts and people just kind of like set up bars in the street. Um, and like basically on like a, like a tuk-tuk, like a pedal, pedal car. And, uh, you know, we started talking with this one bartender, uh, and this guy who was a bartender, he had his, you know, had his little rolling bar. And we're like, hey, you know, we're just sitting there and there really with, with no one else around. It was just us. We're like, hey, do you mind if we, uh, you know, you mind if we jump on your rig and play, you know, will you let us play your guitar a little bit here, man? And uh, we ended up like turning it, doing a little pop-up cocktail bar on the street of uh, uh, of Thailand and, and making ourselves cocktails with some, you know, have some paper plates of street food and, uh I mean, it really is a global community, you know, I mean, traveling around there, I didn't have too many connections outside of Singapore. Uh, I had one connection with a beer dude in, in, in Bangkok, but, you know, you just like anywhere, uh, it doesn't matter what language you speak. Uh, we all speak cocktails. And so you land, you meet and they tell you where to go. And within 24 hours, you know, all the people and especially in a community that's so tight. And I mean, this is a relatively tight community. Um, oh, super tight. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, worldwide, uh, particularly nationwide. And, and and so, I mean, going back to where, you know, you're at the drawing room and all that, you know, um, you know, I think most people would probably recognize you at least, <laughs> I don't know, maybe we're getting old and they they just know you from the Oscars. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, Aviary was a, a big splash for you. Uh, a lot of things happened around your life at that time because, I mean, you got world class, all that stuff. But I mean, how did you get into such a, a, a I mean, I wouldn't say get into such an experimental cocktail program because you were the experimental cocktail program. Uh, well, so I was the second beverage director there. Uh, and the, um, the chef owner of the, the aviary, uh, Grant Atkins is the, uh, you know, the mind behind Alinea, which is, you know, Alinea is, uh, you know, one of our, our currently our only, uh, three mission star restaurant in Chicago, uh, you know, one of the top restaurants in the world. Um, and, and you know, he's just, he's just a great culinary mind that, that, you know, is it is so far so thoughtful in, in the the type of service and food and detail execution that it it's all it's awesome and it's polarizing and anyone who does anything that far on the fringe is going to be who makes that kind of art is going to be is going to be polarizing and but those are the people that also create ideas that then trickle down and you see them influence programs all over the world and in little ways. Um, so the aviary was his concept, you know, as to, th to thinking about what if we used all of the the knowledge and 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 the skills and the prep and the style of service we do and and in, in our restaurant and we apply that to cocktails. Uh, and so they opened, they opened the aviary, which is you know, one of the, again, one of the most revolutionary ideas of a cocktail bar turned it, turned it bar up upside down. And, and, you know, where most bars for centuries, you know, had been a type, you, you walk in, there's a bar, you belly up, you know, you pull up a stool, there's a bartender where this turned it into a truly experiential uh, thing where you sit down, the bartenders are removed from you, so your server's taking you on the journey. Uh, you can see the bartenders; they're kind of behind, uh, like what was literally like a cage. Uh, you know, where you can like an open kitchen for anybody that's been. You know, that's, you guys had, yeah, you did have a cage, but it was you know easy to like kind of uh, check you guys out as you walked in. It was the first thing you saw too when you walked in. You guys, yeah, it was a showcase. I mean, it was incredibly custom designed workspace. You know, and 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 uh, the the. The mise en place, the layout, uh, the functionality was very much thought about in the way that an efficient kitchen runs. Uh, you know, for anyone who's worked 
who's not worked, I guess, in, in, a, in a kitchen. Um, you know, the, it's, it is a beautiful dance when it's done right and when it's laid out right. And, and there's a choreography that happens in a, a kitchen that puts out high quality food consistently and beautiful food and delicious food and does it quickly and, and just keeps this flow going. It is, it is, there's no other way to describe it than a dance. Uh, and when all of the, you know, all of the performers, you know, these, in these, these men and women are, are performers in their own right behind the scenes, they're kind of unsung heroes um, are getting it done. It's like, it's like opening up, to, it's like opening up the most, beautiful Swiss watch and, and watching the movement like work, you know, seamlessly together to do something that on the front looks so simple. Oh, what do you mean? A person walks by, asks us what we want. 10 minutes later, they bring us what we want. <laughs> you know? um, and so they, we did that with the, with the aviary. So Chef Atkins was uh, a, a semi-regular at um, the drawing room. He would come in every once in a while, which was a huge honor for us. You know, we'd see him come in. We're like, oh shit, you know, um, but we always pride ourselves just on, being cool with everybody. We were very chill. I mean, very with everybody. Uh, we treated everybody the same, uh, you know, and, and obviously with you know, tons of respect and gave him space as well because we understood this guy's got very little time off. And so in the minuscule amount of his time off, if he wants to relax and have a drink and he's chosen us, awesome. Let's make sure that every minute of that experience is as good as it can be and that, and, and obviously it worked because he came back. Um, and you know, we did the same thing with that location. There's so you know, uh, so many of the hotels and the people were in time filming or whatever. We had a lot of like celebs and stuff in town that would come and, and tuck away in our little basement bar because there's no windows, no one's gonna bug you. Uh, and they would come back. And that to me is that's the best. People could say they had a good time, they could like your place, but when they come back again and again, that's you know, that's the the that's the, the truth there. So like proving the pudding, if you will. Um, so anyways, randomly, I get an email one day from Chef Atkins and it's like, hey, give me a call. I want to talk. For, I think it was pretty much about that blunt uh, as well. Uh, you know, not a lot, of, not a lot of fluff around. Um, yeah, yeah, he is. You no, know, and that's true. And I, I respect that, you know, born and raised Chicago. Say what you, if you want to say, don't fluff it up. Uh, and yeah, so there's this opportunity. They're like, they're looking for a beverage director. Uh you know, I came from a totally different world. I had no fine dining experience, I, but so it was this. I think it was this perfect marriage of what we both needed. Um, I, I I had so much to learn in terms of um, the skills and the technique and the refinement and the style of service um, that the, that they that the aviary offered, and I was bringing to the table. You know, fifteen years of in the trenches bartending. You know, like like banging it out. You know, at, you know, in my early career, buck, making drinks a bucket at a time, surviving. Uh, you know, on, on tips and and we we both learned so much from one another. I think it was a great. It was really a great a great marriage. And, well, there was no real playbook. I mean, you were writing it as it goes, and I mean, basing it off of a lot of things that he was doing in the kitchen at Alinea. In fact, I, I, I just remembered this as we were talking. So. Um, the second time, yeah, I believe the second time I ate it, Alinea, I don't know. My timing might be messed up. Might have been the first. Uh, but anyhow, um, our first course was some like experimental, um, I, I guess you could say appetizer, whatever. You know, everything's all, you know, it's a, the first course. But it was, um, they came and, and gave us, you know, the rundown that this was like a, an experimental course that was uh, effectively menu testing for aviary. Um, at the time, so it was just kind of cool to like check that out before it opened. And but it was like you you said divisive, absolutely it was. You know because you know people, 
either love the concept or they want to belly up to a bar. Um, but, you know, coming in with that modernist mindset and what you said, you know, this perfect marriage between you, you and uh, Aviary or, or you and, and Chef Ackett's, you know, uh, your your background up to that point had been quite different. Um, but I'm not sure that there was anything that you could have been doing to prepare because there was, again, there was no rule book. And especially when you start to look into like, what can you do and really push the fringes? And, you know, it's... Um, I'm fascinated by, it. I absolutely love modernist cuisine. I know people love the shit on it. And, you know, especially like hardcore, like French, you know, cuisine, Francophiles and all that. But I, I, I just love the whole idea of it. It's fun. It's playful. And it's not always done well. Yeah. Neither is French food. There's a lot of shitty bistros out there, man. And it's, you don't see, you see a lot of chefs out there trying to kind of, I guess, take that uh, that modernist food approach. And I think that really, uh, if your last name isn't Ackett or Andres, uh, you're going to be uh, having a hard time living up to that rep. And, but, you know, we definitely have seen the um, kind of playbook that you guys were writing at the time at the aviary. Um, we've seen a lot of that spread out in a lot more of a prolific manner into cocktail bars or even in just small amounts. I mean, you know, it's not rare to see clarification and all these like kind of cool things. Yeah. Uh, that it's it really cool to see that stuff trickle down into small ways like that. Like I was saying, like, just like the, as he did with, uh, with food, you know, uh, uh, that stuff has trickled down in the beverage and, and it, you know, in terms of like, just like real quickly on that, it's like, anyone who's into food and, you know, at all, like who enjoys, you know, the dining experience or who enjoys cocktails. Um, you you really, I don't think you can truly say you love food if you're not open-minded to trying all kinds of experiences from, um, you know, being in a new city and and eating off of a food truck or eating off of someplace, you know, that's, got a, a, you know, throwing together shack up to, you know, the late night places that the chefs go when they're done with work all the way up to um, the fine dining experiences and the more refined stuff because there's, the beauty is we live in a world right now where there is room for all of those types of expression and everyone is well served by it. And not everyone does execute it as well as another. So a lot of people do like, and it's obvious when you see somebody chasing trends that they don't fully understand and they're pretending. Um, but when you, when you take someone, you know, like, like what the, what the Alinea group is doing, you know, what Thomas Keller does, what, you know, what, what just some of these best, the, you know, that the really top tier chefs, they get it. They're, they're writing the playbook because, because they're playbook, because they're, they're asking questions. Like nothing improves, nothing changes. If you don't question some things and try to do, to do some things and not be afraid to, you know, do stuff that might not work as well. Like if you're, like no, no innovation happens without falling on your face a few times. Um, and, and the people who talk shit, uh, are the people who are, have been in the exact same place for, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to going anywhere and they're probably not going to, uh, you know, they're not better in the industry. Uh, as that so how was that challenge for you going in and like kind of trying to rewire your brain, um, into things that nobody was doing and, you know, I mean, were these were the ideas a collaborative effort, uh, or were they kind of falling down onto you at that time of like, hey, by the way, here's a daiquiri, except we want to completely <laughs> disassemble it and put it back together. You know, I mean, did you have to rewire the way you think about cocktails? Well, uh, I was it was complete culture shock for me. Uh, I've I've described it before, like I was. Um, 
like airdropped in and had parachuted into a foreign country uh, with with a backpack of supplies. And I had no idea what country I was being dropped into. And I didn't know the language when I got in there. And I, I had to figure out a lot of things while I was there because just the type of service, the, um, the, the standards of service, uh, all of that stuff was a whole new world for me coming from a um, ragtag group of, of, of bartenders and kind of figuring out as, as we went, as we said. But the collaborative, it was a hugely collaborative effort and we were given carte blanche in terms of creativity. So it was amazing. I went from a, a place where I, I to talk about carpentry, <laughs> like myself and, and one of the barbacks basically, you know, built the bar. We, you know, if we needed uh, something new in the bar, we went to Home Depot and made it look good, you know, and what, what you could do with dim lights uh, is amazing. And, uh, you know, in a bar, uh, you know, whether it be a board, the amount of polar bar tools or whatever the hell we wanted. We didn't have any money at, the, at my first bar. Um, I mean, and I mean, no money. Uh, so we had a really scrape by. Uh, so to be in a place where, you know, we could be like, hey, like you have an idea for that's going to change the way you drink a drink and you want to design a new glass that that coordinates that. I'm like, awesome. We have, a, we have a glass designer that we can work with and, and we're willing to we're willing to invest in this. If it's if it's a good idea, let's let's work it out and let's talk. And so luckily when I came in. The, the guy who's currently the beverage director and has been since I left is a guy named Micah Melton, and he's incredible. Uh, he he had, he's just had his ten year anniversary recently uh, with the group. He's he's unbelievable. Uh, so he he boy he he lives it and, and breathes it, and he had, and he had been there before uh, you know before I got there, um, and so he was great. And he and I we really work hand in hand, and and you know. Chef would come through and be like, what are you working on? Like, and give suggestions, but never, um, it was up to us, you know? Uh, I mean, I remember even something just as simple and small as trimming, you know, our, our citrus peel swaths that would go into this little custom built clip for the, the, in the rocks, which is a, a ice sphere cocktail that was like, you know, was, was invented there. Uh, they made hollow ice spheres, uh, drilled holes in them pulled out all the water inside of the ice sphere and then injected a cocktail into it, goes into a glass at a, a custom made slingshot that you put on top of the glass and slingshot back up and it breaks the ice sphere. The cocktail pours out and even a little custom made clip that held the orange peel that you would then express over the, the cocktail. And I remember I was making the peels and like, I had been, you know, made, made a million peels. They looked fine. And chef just said something like, boy, what would you think if, you know, which would you trim the edges down and just you know like manicured it a little bit i was like yeah i like you know i'm like i think these look great i kind of I like i like that each one looks a little bit different as long as they're clean and they and all that and then like an hour later i was looking at him like oh shit he's right <laughs> and now i've sent him pictures you know when i'm doing a big event like doing the Oscars or something where i've got 2500 of those that i'm prepping and there's just stacks of them uh, you know, we're going to wrap them up for the for service, you know, that because you have to do them ahead of time when you're doing 2,500. And I'm like, you did this to me. Thanks so much. You know, I'm mean? like, my hands are cramped up from, because we do our own stunts, you know, that is like, we're not, it's not, we don't roll in like, uh, uh, you know, like, like, like the top chef or something with, and then the, the crew does it. And that's actually something that, uh, where I had gained a lot of respect for chef as well. Uh, we would, you know, go out to like, uh, uh, Los Angeles Food and Wine or Aspen Food and Wine and be doing events. Uh, and and he's right there prepping with everybody. And you see other, you know, I guess if you, for lack of a better term, celebrity chefs who do roll in and like they like stick their head in and they're in their crew. 
who's doing everything, all the all the, the Gruntberg, and then they then they go out by the pool. Um, like he's down there, you know, like like helping out. And I was like, when the first time I saw that, I was like, all right, like this is, you know, it makes it a no brainer. Makes it very very much easier to do the work uh, when you know everybody's in it together. Absolutely. Yeah, man. I, I, in fact, I mean, you, you're talking about that and I, I, obviously you've, you've done a lot since then. So we'll, uh, we can move on past heavier, but you know, uh, I mean, I, I absolutely, um, as bougie as this is going to sound, uh, I mean, I think that linear uh, in a linear in particular is probably the best three star I've ever eaten. Um, I'm not going to shit on some of the other, uh, bad experiences I've had, but, um, you know, I, again, I always say it's it's the I the, the terrible irony that you know those of us that can appreciate that kind of food can rarely afford it, and uh, the people who can't afford it can rarely appreciate it. Um, but the uh, but the you know I remember I think it was Michael Roman that wrote you know uh, that was telling you know the first time he walked through uh, to meet Thomas Keller at French Laundry and um, meeting a very very young Chef Ackett's when he was you know still doing prep and on the line there and, and talking about his like dedication to making sure that all of the shallots were absolutely perfectly cared for and, and manicured in exactly the right way. And, uh, you know, and that was just like really striking for him. And, you know, here, here's you relaying the exact same thing. And yeah, it, it's now spread as in, its DNA into your bloodstream. Uh, but, you, you know, absolutely. And, and trickle down to, to so many other bartenders. But. Right. Sure. And so while uh, were you at, I, I mean, I, trying to remember my timeline here were you at aviary still when um you did world class yeah so a, a couple of things like coincided and just crazy timing um when i took the job at aviary i had already been i had already been working on on craft house cocktails and i can see because i remember i had to have the conversation with those guys as we were you know talking about me working there so that i was like hey just so you know I'm starting to work on this project and, and it's going to launch at some point. And, and you know, it's not going to affect, it's like, that doesn't mean I stop working here. It just means like, I need you to know that there's a project happening that uh, myself and, and one of the partners at, uh, at the drawing room, uh, we're working on craft house cocktails. And, and then while I was at aviary, um, I, you know, in the early days of my bartending, uh, especially as I got into the craft, the, the cocktail bartending, um, I used to compete a ton. Uh, and, and, and all of us, it was kind of the same bartenders again and again, because there were so few of us doing craft cocktail bartending. It was a way for us to all get together, kind of brainstorm, see what everybody was doing around the country. Cause you know how this goes, man, you're working, especially if you're the, the, the beverage director or, or, or whatever you're, you know, if you're, if you're, if you have more responsibilities than showing up, making drinks and leaving, you live at that place, you know, if you're, you're burning 70, 80 hour weeks you don't have time to go out to other bars and, and see your friends and whatnot. So these competitions were a great way to, to learn and accelerate yourself. And so I did tons of comps. I did well in them. I, I mean, shit, I had some, I had some good, uh, good runs of, of, of it, you know, and, and I got some great trips uh, and got to see a lot of distilleries and shit. I won a, a, a reality TV show and <laughs> got, a, got a giant check from that. Yeah. It was a, a reality TV show called on the rocks that uh, absolute did. Um, Simon Ford, who would leave and go on to form Ford's Gin in the 86 show, uh, which is great and awesome gin. Uh, you know, he was working for Absolute at the time. He put this, he, he took over this, this cocktail competition. He's like, let's do it right. And uh, yeah, and we did it was on NBC at, after Saturday Night Live when all bartenders could watch it on Saturday, you know, when, 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 when 100% of us are working. So like seven people saw it. Uh, 
And I, I did, but I won it, which was awesome. We, we brought TVs down into the drawing room, actually, and because and, they're a regular opponent to, to, to see it and whatnot. And I, went, I won 100 grand on that show. It was crazy. Like, Are you kidding me? That's like, I was a bar manager. That's, if, for anyone not familiar, that's a, that's a significant income for a young, uh, a young bartender. So, um, yeah, so it was crazy. So I did a lot of competing. Uh, but I pretty much like hung up my competition hat and, and at the window, by the time I'd gotten to the aviary, uh, and I was like judging them occasionally now and then, but then yeah, world-class came around and it was only a third year. It was in the U S uh, and this is a huge competition, biggest global competition, uh, that, that Diageo sponsors. Um, and I had seen the videos of this thing. I was like, wow, 55 countries, you know, like all this, these bartenders from all over the world coming to a different city every year, like the Olympics and, and, and competing for a week. And it wasn't just about cocktails. It was about bartending, like all that stuff we talked about in the big top of the hour here. Like it was about all of those skills too: speed, efficiency, bar side manner, um, not just the liquid in the glass, but also, of course, it's got a it's cocktail can't suck, um, but you also can't be like a stone faced bitch and like, and win, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, like, you gotta bring that X factor, which is why we go to bars, man. Like when you go to you know, any bar you choose to go to, it's not just because of the drinks. And and for me, it's down the, it's down the line. Like that is like third on the list. Like, yeah. Like, is it, am I going to have fun here? Is the music good? Uh, do I, is I'm like a staff work, you know, do I like the staff? Do I get along? I'm gonna go see like some of the crew that's working and oh yeah, they also have good drinks or nice, nice spirit selection. Something I want to drink. Cause I can find something to drink anywhere. Put me in a, you know, Boise, Idaho's airport and whatever, I'll get a whiskey on the rocks and be totally fine and, and you know, be good. So, um, so I saw this cop and it brought me back to my early days of competing. And I was like, this is like the same reason that we used to compete when we were younger to kind of get, like get with everybody and put it together. Uh, I was like, I can do this now on a global scale and see what somebody in Tokyo is doing and somebody in Toronto and somebody in Belize and whatever, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, I got, I, I, I asked them, I'm like, Hey guys, you mind if I do this, this competition? Um, and went and, and won the damn thing. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was crazy. Well, let me stop you there for one second. Won the damn thing. So first American to ever win the damn thing. <laughs> and certainly set you on a path. Um, gave you a little freedom to to kind of get out and, and try some new things. Yeah, it changed, changed my life. Yeah, unplanned. It changed, it changed my, my trajectory for sure. I do want to get into... Um, you know, your what you're doing currently, and, and that definitely helped to kick that off. I mean, you all these cool things that I mentioned at the top of the hour, you know, doing the Oscars and, and all these things are, are the kind of things that came out of you know that initial uh attention of from the competitions and general. Maybe it all came from winning uh right after Saturday Night Live. Yeah, you know, it, I mean, it, it definitely like it was a uh, uh, this domino effect for sure, but there's amazing timing of I won world class and. I want to say within a, a four-week period, we also launched our bottle cocktail line, Craft House Cocktails, by complete happenstance. So it was it was beautiful timing for to launch that new project and then to win world class. But like so when I won world class, it also shifted. I had the they kind of it's kind of like Miss America in a way, where like the <laughs> you get to go on tour the next year as much as you're able to. So I started to get all these offers to to Hey, you want to come to Japan and and do a cocktail seminar and and, and bartend at this bar? Do you want to come to Tel Aviv and do this? Do you want to? You know, I'm like, 
So I'm like, Chef, I sat down with Chef and, and uh, Nick, the owner, and I was like, you guys, like, I've got this incredible opportunity to travel the world um, and work with bartenders all over the place and do what we do. And they're like, you got to, I mean, you got to go. This is once, once in a lifetime. And so in the last, you know, since 2014, I've been to about 50 countries, um, you know, because of, because of the world-class program and, and uh, you know, working with bartenders, doing guest bartending gigs, judging competitions, uh, going to distilleries and, and learning about what we do, you know, continuing to my, my own education. And then, um, you know, that core corresponded with us launching our, our line of bottle cocktails, um, which, you know, which was great time. It's now been eight years since that. Yeah. So I remember when um, th- that happened and like you said, it kind of coincided with the launch of craft tales, craft house cocktails and, and, the, um, and uh, the actual world class. And I remember that thinking, Oh, well, <laughs> he's jumping on this opportunity and like, he's bailing, like, that's what I would do. Not realizing that at the time that that was, the wheels were already in motion with that. And two years of R and D on Crafts House. Uh, yeah. We were, we spent full two years from concept to uh, bottles, you know, in hand and ready to sell to people. Uh, so yeah, it's a curious. We're going, I mean, we're going back to what, 20, 2013, 2014. We uh, launched, uh, so is, I think we just had our eight. We're going on nine years now. So yeah, what is that? Yeah, yeah exactly. 2013. Yeah. Okay. I, and you know, that's that was really early on for like uh, RTD or, or, or ready to drink cocktails. I mean, you know, now that's the, what everybody's talking about because of COVID and, you know, bars have been shut down and everybody's been scrambling to try to do whatever they can. And in places like, you know, uh, the Indianapolis market, uh, we cannot make cocktails um, to go for carryout. And the despite yeah it's just asinine the state laws i mean you're one of the last because the COVID, COVID has pushed over 30 states to allow cocktails to go which is genius and and it just makes sense because these are like you say archaic laws um people that are not in the business they need to understand these are laws going back to prohibition um uh, like literally going back to the repeal of prohibition crazy laws like you know restricted drinking on sundays not you know at certain times are we just two years in, or three years god how long has it been now three years in indiana we could have only been able to drink uh or buy alcohol in package liquor stores for three years but you know, you know when i said you know so in indiana you can sell uh a bottle of booze so we can sell a bottle of booze out of the front door and we had a big plan like oh this is great we're just going to set up our little uh like we've got an old school witco um, bar that we were just going to shove up to the door <laughs> so nobody could actually come in and just sell like tiki drinks in, in plastic cups for people walking in our neighborhood. And uh, of course, you know, that we quickly realized we couldn't do that. I mean, we knew it. We just thought that they, we thought they would ease it or something like that. And, um, and that's where I thought it was kind of dumb because, um, well, here's a perfect example. So the prosecutor in downtown Indianapolis has said he, um, obviously he, the prosecutor has no, <laughs> Uh, power to change the laws in Indiana. But he said, if anybody gets arrested uh, for under one ounce of cannabis um, in in Indianapolis, uh, he'll drop the case. He's not interested in in pursuing convictions or arrests or anything. Uh, I'm sorry, convictions. The arrest can still happen, but he's just going to throw it out when it gets there. So, you know, if he can do that, that our thought was like, well, you know, we're not asking to change the laws. I was like, okay, fine. You don't want to change it because all these religious, you know, fanatics in Indiana want to keep their blue laws and you don't want to allow us to make cocktails for sale. Fine. Just look the other way until this shit's over. You know, I mean, just say we're not really going to enforce it. Just, you know, do what you need to do. And it certainly would have helped bars 
to continue on. And I, I know I took a, a, a very <laughs> securitous route to get around to this, but that's where like ready to drink cocktails were big for us because we needed to be able to have something that was in its original packaging that we could let go out the door because that would, that's how the law reads. It has to be in its original packaging. We can't shake a drink and, and sell it. So those, we were looking for things that kind of, uh, you know, express who we are and what we stand behind. And it's a space that's still very young. I mean, there's a lot out there, but it, you know, a lot of what out there or what is out there is being targeted toward a very different demographic, you know, just the kind of Walmart crab and go your giant box of margaritas. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, very different than kind of the products that you guys are putting together. So like, I mean, who is the the, the drinker of, of craft house cocktails or who are you kind of aiming towards? Yeah. To- yeah. So it, so this thing, we kicked this thing off um, not because we, sh- there were, again, there was no trend. It was kind of like our cocktail bar. We did it on, you know, we did it because we had a, we, we knew we could make drinks uh, and we heard from our guests that, and we, I teach people how to make drinks all the time. I, I have a line of barware and glassware. I want people to make cocktails at home. You know what I mean? I want, I'm not, I never, we never wanted to take anything away from bartenders or people making their own cocktails. But there are so many times when people didn't have all the ingredients, didn't have the capability, or weren't in a location where they weren't going to be able to make a quick drink. In places where we kill it now, like, you know, pre-COVID theaters, uh, sporting events, concerts, things like that, you're just not going to get an all-in-the-new cocktail made in those um, settings. Or, um, you know, cocktails to go, you're going, you know, whatever, camping, or you got something. You want to bring something that's not beer or wine. No one was putting real cocktails in a bottle. Uh, and so it, it, it is literally for anyone that wants, um, is looking for a, a cocktail experience. Um, and, and it doesn't, I'm talking about, you know, our cocktails are not revolutionary. We didn't reinvent the wheel, but, but we did make real cocktails using real spirits uh, that you would actually want to drink. So no like goofy malt stuff or brew, like mystery brewed alcohol, um, you know, actually, <laughs> Actual vodka, gin, rum, you know, tequila, we can tell you where it came from. Um, you know, real citrus. Uh, we made simple syrup <laughs> and put it into our cocktails just like, you know, we, we went about making bottle cocktails um, by me making one recipe, figuring out how I'd make it for you if you walk in my bar and then being like, all right, now what if we made 2,000 of these and then put them in the bottles and then figure out how, how we can make that shelf stable and do all these things. And, and so it's, you know... We get it like, I mean, now like it, it is, people are so accustomed to cocktails now, they realize that they can have a composed cocktail as opposed to beer or wine. Um, and the flavor profiles are obviously all over the board, you know, so we can give somebody something bright and refreshing. We can give somebody a spicy Moscow mule, you know, we can give somebody uh, uh, a whiskey sour, you know, we can give somebody uh, a rum fashion, you know, we can, you know, we, whatever it might be. Uh, and it's all stuff that I like to drink as well. I mean, you can see it in like, we launched this year, uh, three new cocktails. We launched a pineapple daiquiri using uh, plantations, pineapple rum, uh, their five-year Barbados rum and uh, Angostura bitters, lime and civil syrup is exactly the ingredients I used to make it in the bar. And I was able to source the exact <laughs> ingredients and put them into our bottle, you know, and it's people here like pineapple daiquiri. You're like, that's like, what is this like? You know, New Orleans, like uh, you know, street slushy. For those that don't know, now you know. 
the pineapple daiquiri is a loved cocktail amongst professional bartenders, and a daiquiri is a thing of thing of beauty. And uh, when a problem talking about a proper daiquiri, not some goofy thing that you had on Carnival Cruise Lines, um, you know, rum lime and, and sugar balance perfectly. Um, you know, whatever it might be, a rum old fashioned. We launched a mezcal margarita. Um, so, like, you know, they're 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 not. You know, yes, it's a little, a little bit of a difference. It's definitely a trade up from drinking like a hard seltzer. Uh, like hard seltzer is, I mean, these are going to be just as refreshing. Um, they're just as approachable in terms of flavor profile, but you know what you're drinking. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you touched on it. Like, how do you, how are you choosing what goes in? Because, uh, I mean, there's a lot of considerations, you know, uh, you know, like you talked about citrus, I mean, you know, how fast that might, uh, degrade or, um, you know, not, not taste as good if somebody left it in their refrigerator for six months or, or even exposed to light. I mean, how are you approaching what gets released, uh, as, as the new cocktail? Well, I mean, that was the two years R and D, uh, you know, shelf stability, bottling, uh, how to, you know, everything, my God, we learned, uh, you know, we're still learning all the time, but you know, we've got we've got that stuff all figured out. Um, but we're still definitely you know learning, and and we're, there's there's just no one, no one was doing it, and so to find a facility, uh, you know, it's called a co-packer. It's, it's, this is where you go to, to, to bottle up whatever you're making, uh, whether you're making up, you know, a kombucha or <laughs> ready to go cocktails. Uh, you need to, you know, you're not gonna nobody's got the money coming out of the gates to build a factory. Uh, you know, we, we still don't, and we're well out of the gates. Uh, you know, uh, it's interesting. I didn't realize that co-packers did or had access to all the, the booze and stuff as well. You need, that's a difficult thing. You need to find base who has, they need to have a licensing to deal with spirits. They need to, and we have all sorts of other specifics for us. We need somebody who can carbonate because we've got like our Moscow mule or Palomas, you know, carbonated things. Uh, we need somebody who will, who will deal with juice, who can deal with perishable items that has refrigeration and things like that. Uh, we need somebody who is willing to make simple syrup. There are, we, we, we lost people right at the beginning and we just walked away because they're like, why would you make this? Like, we can just put corn syrup in and do this. And like, why would you, like, we can just use citric acid in this. And we're like, you don't get it. That's why you go to the store and buy something on the shelf. That's why it tastes like shit. Like everyone's taking your shortcuts. We're, we're doing it right. And so we, we had to learn with, with some co-packers who were adventurous with us and, and we, we've learned over time. So, you know, in the case of like we were asking back to your question, uh, in the case of like the citrus, you know, the citrus is pasteurized, so it's it's shelf stable. Uh, we don't we put no citric acid in anything that we're doing, um, and then we are also uh, we're very shelf stable because of our ABV. Uh, we're we are like when you look at a lot of what's on the on the shelf, it's five, six, seven percent. Um, if you if I come into your bar and get a cocktail, none of those cocktails is five, six, or seven percent. They're they are, you know, they're probably more 13 to 15% for a shaking cocktail, 17% maybe uh, alcohol, and, and, and 30 plus percent for a stirred cocktail. Um, and people don't realize that. And so our, all of our ABVs are, are, are true ABVs, 10% plus, um, you know, uh, all the way up the line. And they just are what they are. We made the cocktail and then we tested it and see what the ABV is. And then that's what goes in. We didn't cut them. You know, we don't, we don't water it down for tax purposes or, or anything else. So a lot of what we do is more expensive, more labor intensive, but it, it's right. And it shows, um, in the, in the end product. And it's, you know, so we were like, yeah, we were, we were truly led the charge and, and we're, we're one of the first, uh, and, and now we you know there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of brands on the market, which is great, especially this last year, you know, there's more, um, 
uh, on the shelf, but it also makes a little more homework for people to do, uh, you know, when they're when they're trying stuff. So they just gotta uh, they just gotta ship and and see, let their palates be the proof, uh, and, and do a little homework, you know. Like in our case, we we're, we're an open book. One of our very early um, ideas was that like let, we're not putting anything in these bottles that we don't want to talk about. So you know, and we don't have to, you know, it's real easy to tell uh, tell your story when it's true and. Uh, <laughs> to answer questions when everybody's just you know saying telling what it is we don't have to none of it's marketing um which is which is cool and that's and it's something that you know in this business that there are there are brands for sure that oh man they, they spend a fortune building marketing stories um you know and i think that's the, the cool thing about being a startup is like we our story is our story like we are you know it's me and one of the owners from the drawing room and we, we knew how to make cocktails and decided to democratize cocktails if you will uh and, and kind of bring them bring them to the people so yeah we covid's been cool for us uh in terms of that because people have been boozing at home <laughs> right well that's what i was going to say because you know you touched on a little bit earlier you're talking about you know uh teaching people how to make cocktails and all that and of course over the last uh last year or so we've seen a, a, just a deluge of every bartender in the country doing live streams on instagram there was a point i just had to stay off instagram because it was like 25 alerts of cocktail classes, you know, like, I, yeah, I've done a bunch myself, man. I've, I've done tons of virtual classes. You know, it is very cool. And it's like, just because I've seen them a bunch of times doesn't mean that everybody has, and you know, your, your barware and all that, but like, how, how was the, uh, I mean, the craft house stuff, uh, during the last year, I mean, did you see a shift in who was buying them? Uh, were the people at home or did you see bars picking them up that, you know, like I said, with us, you know, did you see that kind of a, a new market opening up for you guys on that end as well? Uh, well, one door open where one huge door slammed in our face. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I, I say, you know, I say that in jest, like, uh, you know, earlier, it, it, COVID's been a fucking nightmare. Um, you know, it's been a complete nightmare. Um, we've had, we had so many of our eggs in the basket and so much of, of what, what what's called known as on-premise, which you know means where people could buy alcohol and then consume it right away. So we were in, we were supposed to launch with Virgin Cruise Lines uh, a, a month after COVID hit, which is for a small brand like ours, but we're not, you know, for an independent brand like ours uh, is a huge partner. And, and we are going to launch with those guys still. So we're getting ready to do that. Oh yeah, Cruises, they did really well during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we were launching on Amtrak, uh, we had a bunch of stuff going on with Hilton Hotels. Uh, we we're in, you know, tons of theaters like Broadway theaters and, and theaters around the around the country. All that stopped overnight. So we were like, oh, shit, like what, are, you know, we're 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 dead here. So we very quickly shifted. Then we're like, OK, you know, and, and we're for, for an independent brand like us to get partnerships with those types of companies. We have really like we built relationships where, you know, you you don't get it like we can't we, we can't compete with the big the big companies in terms of what what they can do in terms of support all we can do is be the right tool for the job and them to know that we're the best product um even if we're we might cost a little bit more for them because we can't get our cost down quite as low as these big companies um they'll pay more but because we're real people and we're involved and we now we build these friendships with these people so push painful to watch you know all of these these people just go freeze all of a sudden I mean, and then all of our friends at bars so we've been in hospitality for 20 years so we had to shift immediately um and and move to the retail world and put more focus on that 
and people started drinking at home with a huge uptick. Uh, retail liquor sales at grocery stores, you know, gross some in some states, depending where you're at, like in Illinois, grocery stores sell alcohol. Um, you know, exploded. Uh, and, and as you're saying, yeah, I was talking to bar owners, and I was like, hey, like this is this is a this is a so, so exactly what you're saying, a turnkey solution for you to do cocktails to go. Like we'll get you these as cheaply, you know, as inexpensive as we can. And you, you know, put your markup on them and it builds your guest check averages and you have no, um, you've got no waste. You've got perfect in- inventory control. Um, you know, you don't need to buy a bunch of product that's going to go, uh, you know, out of date or lemon juice that's going to turn or something like that. So um, we have been the solution and saw, you know, places that would not typically carry us selling us to go, uh, you know, in restaurants and stuff, which has been great. We've been, you know, honored to serve that role in the interim uh, with those folks. And then, and then why we've obviously been pushing our. I mean, you say in the interim, do you think that that is the interim? I mean, as we start seeing things reopening, uh, just what, about two, two weeks into this, uh, the reopening in Chicago, I was just there last week. And I mean, obviously most of it's, everything is still closed, uh, you know, but um you know, uh, we probably won't get rid of them ourselves. You know, they're just kind of cool. They they make it easy to have, you know, like outdoor events, things like that, where, you know, uh, having those ready drinks and not having to, like you said, you know, previously we would have just chucked, you know, 50 gallon coolers. And, you know, like you said, you're, you're tons of missing plus it does kind of streamline things and lets us do uh, what we do best, which is be hospitable and, and throw a party. And, you know, do you think that, uh, you, you know, it's, Started as an interim solution, but it might become a longer-term partnership. I mean, no doubt this has forever changed the face of, of the way we do a lot of things, um, and we're going to we're going to see uh, it's, it's going to stick around to some extent, even to the point of uh, in, in a lot of situations, you know, from a from from a sanitation standpoint, like people are like, it's had zero touch. The liquid is sealed in the can. It's had zero touches. You can. Crack the seal, hand it to the hand it to the guest, and then that's it. Or if you're selling it to go, you know it's fully sealed the entire time. So uh, it, you know it will to some extent, I think, carry on. And I think a lot of the states will maintain who have allowed cocktails to go are going to maintain their laws. You know, that was illegal in Chicago prior to COVID, um, and so I certainly hope that they keep doing it. Here in the bars, we're able to make their own proprietary cocktails and then put them into some tamper evident um, vessels and then sell them. Um, Another smart solution that Indiana could have adopted. <laughs> uh, yeah, put some shrink wrap on it, or like let's do. So basically, you know, if like, and, and there's and there's some logical reasons. Like if somebody has an open container in a car, you know, you can't can't drive around with a cocktail open in your car. That's fine, you know. So at least you know it's sealed. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not 1973. Uh, it, it's so at least you know it's sealed. Yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of easy ways. That bars can, can can do it, and some 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 places have been. I mean, even out out east, you know, it took Boston forever to get on board, and and some big markets out there. Um, so yeah, I think we will see. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of a lot of that shifting, uh, and, we'll, and we'll see a hangover from this for sure. Cruises obviously are going to start <laughs> sailing again at some point, and, and some of these big contracts. I mean, um, are you? kind of preparing for the uh, massive amounts of, of orders to come through. Uh, like you said, I mean, you're a, a very um, hands-on company with just a couple of you. I mean, it seems like you've got some really big uh, partnerships that could overwhelm you really quickly. Yeah, we're prepared. We've been, we've been, this is what we train for. 
you know, it's like, yeah, no. So it's, we've got, you know, we, we, we really, that's the beauty. Like we've been around for, for eight years plus now. So we've, we've made mistakes early on and we've been able to grow and adjust. And we've got, we've got a small, um, but, but tight crew. Uh, and we all, we all communicate, you know, we have, you know, we're, we run meetings at least, um, twice a team, twice a week with the entire team, just to touch base and be like, Hey, what's, you know, what do we need? What, what's going on? Um, yeah, we could use some more salespeople, uh, with some of the things that bigger companies have that we don't have. Um, you know, but we're, we're still very hands-on. That's something that, you know, co- where do I email my resume? <laughs> <laughs> have you um, taken like um, input from some of your partnerships with the larger, uh, well, even smaller, whatever, uh, about, you know, if they're looking for a particular cocktail and kind of taking some input and thinking, oh, maybe, you know, we've had a lot of requests for whatever, a, a pineapple daiquiri, uh, you know. Yeah, to the, to some extent, we we have, and I mean, if if a partner like you know, if a partner of that size, uh, if let's say, I don't know, uh, you know, like Marriott wants to put us in all their hotels or something, and they're like, and they're like, you know, they're like, we really want a mai tai, like, and that's a big, you know, we can make it, it, it the the economy of it makes sense to, to yes we could we could make something for for someone like that. i guess that's what i was asking yeah is that you would because you yeah, got a partner big enough and they can commit to buying enough that you're not sitting in a warehouse full of my ties or something yeah 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 we have and we've got some we've got some stuff in the hopper that we are developing for um for that for that type of application um so yeah yeah absolutely and it's you know but most of it is is honestly just from us us being in the trenches and 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 be making stuff like I said like we like to drink like if you look at if you ask me what I drink on my own aside from you know bottle cocktails like it is it is that like I make myself a Tommy's margarita I make myself a daiquiri I make myself a mezcal margarita so it's uh you know or in a simple old fashioned you know just like a three ingredient four ingredient cocktails um, I drink tons of agave uh, you know so you see you see that. That's uh, so why we launched a Paloma before we launched the Margarita. Um, you know, the Margaritas have been 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 dragged through the mud so so badly by bo- the bottle cocktail business. Um, you know, we wanted to to build our trust with people before we came out with our own. Um, you know, we have a South Side. Who the hell knows what the South Side is? But like, it's once we introduce people to it, they really oh, it's just just a you know a gin sour with lime. It's a gin gimlet with lime or a gin. Well, I don't think it's a, a too far of a stretch of the imagination, like you said, um, going back to where we were talking mid episode. You know, in the uh, mid aughts, where you kind of had to like push people in the right direction before you could, you know, uh, really really unleash the weirdness on them, you know, like, Hey, maybe that's, that's how I learned the South side, man. That was my gateway cocktail. Like, you know, it was a, oh, it's a classic cocktail. People that don't know. It's just a uh, gin citrus and a little bit of simple syrup with some muddled mint in it. It's delicious. Uh, <laughs> it's a sim- simple, you know, simple cocktail. Uh, and it's delicious. And it was my gateway cocktail. People were like, Oh, I hate gin. I'm like, let me make you something. And like, you give it to them. They're like, this is delicious. I'm like, it's loaded with gin. <laughs> you don't hate you hate the way gin was, was. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've all, that. well, and I, you know, I'm in the rum world. And so I always hear, Oh, I, I don't like rum. I haven't had rum since college. And like, hold on a second. I got something for you. You've had Malibu. That doesn't count. <laughs> so my bar is rum. This whole, that's rum. You know, it's, it's one of the things I drink most. I actually don't make cocktails at home. Uh, the only, uh, the only quote cocktail I will make at home is a tea punch, which is re- barely qualifies, you know, it's effectively an old fashioned. So, um, 
you know, most of my rum in the, in the cabinet is, it, I just turn, it's all unicorn stuff now because, um, so, because if I drink at home, uh, you know, I'm, I don't want to make the big mess. Uh, my wife doesn't really drink. Um, so we either drink wine or I drink RTDs. Like, I mean, I, <laughs> I like to find a really badass version of a cocktail so that I can just pop out, pour and, and, and consume because, you know, I do that all day, every day. I don't want to be around it at home. I just want to be able to sit back and enjoy and not have to clean up the mess. And so I think what you guys are doing is amazing. That's, that's one of the best when, when I see or hear of bartenders who I know are really excellent, really capable bartenders. And they're like, oh, yeah, when, you know, I went over to my mom's house to, to you know, do whatever, whatever. And, and I brought a bunch of craft house. They're like, you know, it was great. I'm like. They're like, yeah, like I get home from work, like exactly what you just said. Like, I don't want to make a cocktail at that point. Like, and I'm like, and we're their choice. And I'm like, that's, that's the best endorsement ever. I'm like, awesome. You know, I, I, I just had a, uh, one of my best friends just got married, you know, very, uh, very intimate, uh, you know, gathering. They did all the, all the COVID, you know, in the environments that they had pushed off time and time again up through this, through this past year. And they finally were like, okay, we're going to do it. And, uh, you know, just shrink everything down and make it super, super intimate, uh, with the, you know, it's a small core group, but I was like, all right, well, we're going to do the cocktails. And so, you know, made sure that we did all the craft house and, you know, the people that were there, a lot of them was the first time tasting it and we're, you know, coming up and, and, and just everybody's like, I can't believe this came out of a can because the, the bartender was like, you know, their, their partner would go up to the bar or whatever, and the bartender was pouring into a glass and garnishing it. So they were tasting it, and they didn't realize that it was coming out of a, a can or a bottle or, you know, or on tap on the, on the boxes. We have. And I was like, yeah, that's what I want to hear. You know, if we've, like, accidentally tricked people into thinking that it was a, a cocktail made all of a new, I'm like, boom, mission accomplished. <laughs> you know, we've done it. We're doing it right. I do think that we're living in a very cool age where, you know, the um – I guess preconceived notions of anything coming out of a can is crap. You know, um, we're seeing really beautiful craft beer. I think really kind of kicked it off hard. Which for me, I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, why weren't the craft breweries doing this before? There's so much better marketing <laughs> opportunities on a full label all the way around a can than there ever was on a bottle. And then you start seeing wine and some really badass ready to drink cocktails and all, I think some of the notions of it, if it's, you know, pre-packaged or pre-made and you buy it off the shelf at the supermarket, it couldn't possibly be good. And, you know, guys like you, uh, like you two are out there, you know, proving that that's absolutely not the case any longer. And I do think the attitudes are changing significantly. It's still a lot they are talk about the amount of work we had i mean from in the last eight years and where the acceptance of the category has changed well i mean wild like people were looking at us like we were crazy we first launched we had a we had to go hand sell into every whole foods in chicago uh and in utah these buyers are know their booze in there you know it's a pretty it was well curated little liquor liquor selections in the whole foods uh and and we had to go into each one each one of these you know young liquor buyers, well, these young spirit and wine buyers who were, the last thing they wanted to see was an RTD walking through and they were predisposed to want to hate the product. And we got placed into every single one of those <laughs> suckers, you know? And then we were like, all right, we got like, and we, it was like that aha moment every time. They're like, oh, this can be good. This can be good. Like, okay, you know, and that's, and that's been, you know, eight years, just liquid lips, you know, getting, um, getting people tasting them on it and just kind of keeping doing what we're, keeping doing what we're doing, you know? Well, I think that uh, the, the common thread through your career up to this point has been shattering 
perceptions of or preconceived notions of how things should be. Uh, you know, I don't want to keep you all night. It's two more things here I want to I want to hit on before you go. Uh, number one, where can we people find you online? We need to be able to uh, point people towards Craft House so uh, they can either uh, shipping uh, is that done through like uh, do you do it direct or is it all through uh, you know packaged liquor stores and things like that? So it, we're actually setting up on our website right now uh, and any day now, um, probably by the, maybe by the time this airs, um, if you go uh, to crafthousecocktails.com, uh, we'll have a, um, a link that'll look like a storefront and it'll allow us to be able to ship most places. Like it'll be shipped through someone else. We can't, we're not, we're not legally not allowed to ship our own alcohol. Well, that'll, that'll be cool. Uh, and yeah, you're seeing that. And then, um, you know, we're in uh, 20 states right now. Uh, we'll be in, in more than 30 uh, by summer, I would say. Um, you know, so uh, in, in, in Illinois, uh, you know, Benny's is, is a huge one. Uh, Foxtrot Market in, in, in the city of Chicago is a great little uh, boutique market where, like, they will have somebody run you your stuff within an hour. It's awesome. <laughs> it's great. You get, you get your lunch, like some essentials, and like some uh, your bottle of wine and some cocktail. You can basically get a whole picnic delivered to your house in an hour, which is pretty awesome. Um, and then, like, Total Wine is a huge partner uh, in, around the country where they are. Um, but yeah, and then and then but yeah, but honestly, check us out, especially uh, on, on Instagram. It's at, at Drink Craft House. Um, you send a message through there. Um, there's only you know eight of us in the company, so it comes straight to uh, myself and my business partners. will get will get that uh, info, and so there's no there's no red tape to jump through. If you have a quick question, it actually uh, will get answered by one of us. So. Yeah, you've always been very quick to answer any questions I've had, and uh, I mean I do appreciate all that and. <laughs> um, completely on the personal side and 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 to by listening out there we're going to have uh links to all of those uh all of those websites and, and uh portals that he just mentioned uh in the show notes and you know for posterity and forever as long as uh, as long as the podcast lasts but uh you also uh run a couple other instagram accounts you've got your own of course and then you've got tell vintage um, which I've got actually I don't uh maybe right over here is my I don't even know where I'm pointing actually it's right behind my head um, I got some of uh, the, the Alistair Crowley, uh, vintage tarot. Oh yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, it's super cool. But, um, you, because you travel so much, you come across all these really cool antiques, uh, liquor ephemera, just I, I, all over the place. And, uh, like you, I, I love, uh, watches. I love the engineering of, of them. You know, it's just, it's just an art that, that blows my mind, you know, that you've got something so small and that it just, that somebody had to take so much time, energy, effort into making that just precisely tell the time. I mean, I'm, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but uh, but you often put the, uh, your finds up for sale. And not only uh, are they up for sale, what's very, very cool about it is that it's all donated to charity. Uh, you're a big dog lover and, and you've been able to donate tons and tons uh, of money through the sales of Telltale. Um, and I just thought I'd give you an opportunity to talk about that a little bit because some really 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 neat stuff yeah yeah we have my, myself and one of my my oldest friends uh is out of san francisco uh does this with me and uh yeah I, i've got a huge vintage bug uh in me and i think it's uh it's part of it was growing up with my grandparents and growing up with that generation of and, and all this old stuff they had in their house and i just fell in love with things that were not only designed to be functional but were designed to be beautiful and i think it's something that We've lost a lot uh, in, in a throwaway culture, and so there's. I, I do love 
I'd much rather go find an, an antique table or end table or, or, or piece to have, you know, hanging around than, than go to a store and get something that's newly manufactured. Uh, you get something with much more personality and, uh, uh, you know, probably a fraction of the cost as well. And, and now, now we even realize there's an environmental impact. You're not, you know, uh, you're, 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 you're recycling something in a, in a way, which is great. So yeah, we have telltale vintage. It's, um, T T L L T A I L vintage on, on Instagram. So yeah, definitely check us out there. Yeah. We donate, uh, well, well over 10% of all profits. It's probably more like a wash by the end of the, uh, by the end of it, once you, the, the, the hours of treasure hunting and posting and everything else that goes into it. Um, but yeah, we, we pick a different, uh, you know, different animal rescues and charities, um, all over the world you know, to donate to depending on need. So, you know, when, when, when Texas froze over, <laughs> You know, we we sent uh, you know sent a bunch of money down to the SPCA there. When when Puerto Rico got hit, um, you know, there's a, there's a great rescue out in Rincon we sent to or whatever, whatever it might be. So it's nice that allows us to do our hobby. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you guys are also uh, there briefly um, after the uh, explosion in Lebanon and Beirut. Um, that was you, right? You, you were sending money over to help the homeless dogs that had kind of gotten affected by the explosion. Yeah, yeah. All these places. I mean, because obviously, in any kind of disaster like that people need help. <laughs> and, and so like the Red Cross is showing up and, and everyone's thinking about it. And that's, and that's obviously so important. Um, but the, the fallout is always that there's a huge need and pressure on these animal rescues as well. Uh, and they get overwhelmed often something after something like Katrina, let's say, I mean, it's, there are just thousands and thousands of homeless pets that also um, get rescued. So while, you know, there's lots of people and the news is going to be talking about as they should be, you know, talking about all of the organizations that are there to help people that are really in need. It can give us to focus a chance to focus on something that is a little more um, overlooked, you know, and send a little bit. And it's, it's not a lot, you know, it's a little bit <laughs> that goes, but every bit counts. And if we can raise awareness. And so I'll say while we've got, while I've got the mic, uh, you know, fucking adopt, don't shop, um, you know, uh, stop, uh, you know, no shame to anyone who has purchased their pet. Um, but uh, we euthanize literally millions of animals in this country alone uh, annually, and uh, there are millions available for adoption. Uh, you can find the right uh, pet for you, whether you want a cat or a dog or a rabbit or a bird or whatever you're into, um, small, large, puppy, senior, any kind of temperament, specific breeds, they're out there. Um, you know, shit, shoot me an, an email or a message on Instagram. And you're like, I really want to what a chihuahua puppy and I can't find one. I'm gonna buy one. I'd be like, no, hang in there. This is a you're gonna that that baby's gonna be with you for 18 years, maybe 15 years. So well, So I actually um when I was still in journalism school, uh I and this would have been gosh, uh right after 9-11, I, I went to school a little older. Um and I just interviewed um one of the longest serving um House of Representative members, representatives, uh, um that morning, Andy Jacobs, and he and I just got to bullshitting. And uh, he said, you know, he had two Great Danes that he found in a parking lot at a deli. And they were like the best dogs that he's ever had. And like, he's so glad that he, you know, rescued them, yada, yada, yada. I go to work that night. And uh, it was like the first freeze of, of the year. It was like in November. And uh, there was a dog out underneath the awning of the, of the restaurant I worked at. And um, she was begging for food as people walked out if they had any like carryout bags. And she was wet and flea ridden and just in, in, in a bad way. And uh, I went and asked the other manager if he had a problem with me leaving. 
picked her up, put her in my car, took her home, bathed her, bathed her again and again and again and again and again, a lot of times. Uh, and yeah, that was in, oh yeah, right after 9-11. So 2001, um, she was already a year old at that point. Uh, and she just died right before COVID. So she, 19 years she was with me and she was a 55 pound dog, really large. And, and, uh, I think that, I mean, well, CBD dog treats definitely helped her in the last few years of life. She got really, really, really bad arthritis, but, um, but yeah, I, I just think that, you know, everybody gets hung up on their purebred thing and, you know, it's good to mix up the DNA. It, it strengthens. You know, uh, the, the gene pool and, and all that. And, and if I had not had that conversation with that gentleman uh, prior in the day that day, I don't know if I would have picked up a dog and just taken it home. But uh, yeah, I, I just couldn't say enough good things about street dogs. There's so many people think too, they're like, oh, I have kids. I need a, I need a dog with the right temperament. You can get a puppy as well. And you can start them from scratch if you're worried about that. Or uh, my, my big suggestion for people as well, you can pull a dog from a foster family. So these are dogs who have been taken from shelters and people are fostering them. They may have had them for several months at that point. They'll know all the ins and outs of that particular animal. They'll know how they deal with cats and kids and dogs, how they are on the leash. And so you can, they basically have done a little bit of the work for you and, 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 uh, and acclimating that dog at home and can answer a lot of those questions. So there really is no excuse. And there is, you know, People are like, it's a good breeder, this and that. Every time you buy a dog from a breeder, you're just reinforcing it. You have no idea what's happening behind the scenes. Um, a lot of times the runs are the litters. They end up getting tossed into shelters or worse. Uh, it's just, they're, they're truly millions of animals. There's zero um, reason to not find the perfect pet. And, and, and if it takes you a month or two to find the right one, um, again, like you said, 19 years, man. I mean, you know, it's, it's a long-term commitment. So if you're going to have a, a buddy for 10, 12, 15 years, uh, taking a couple of months to find the right one uh, through a responsible source. And and I will, and that's my soapbox. And I'm not mad that I was on the soapbox. Oh, cool. But. I'm going to leave some, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'm going to put up some links to some charities here on the show notes as well. And, you know, um, if there's anything in particular you want to shoot my way here after the show, I'll make sure that it gets out there and we can spread the word. Um, before I wrap up today, I do want to encourage everybody to, you know, again, check out uh, or, um, you know, shiftdrinkpodcast.com. You can go into all the archives and we've talked about world-class and a lot of the things that Charles talked about earlier today. And, uh, on a, on a very somber note, um, uh, I kind of want to dedicate this episode and show to, uh, my, my friend, uh, Mike Gaines, who for 16 years was a bartender at Indianapolis's, uh, probably most famous restaurant, St. Elmo's Steakhouse. It's been there for over a hundred years. Very well known. Um, Mike, uh, Mike and I graduated together. we went to, uh, we hung out quite a lot in, in high school and, you know, shared some drinks and, and herbal, uh, remedies and all those things. And, uh, uh, he did pass away from COVID last Friday. And so, uh, you know, this, this shows for Mikey and, uh, you know, please be careful out there, folks. It's not over yet. We're close to the end. Let's not blow it now. So, uh, Charles, thanks for coming on the show, man. Uh, cheers. And, uh, I hope to get to, uh, link up with you again soon whenever, when it's safe to do so in, in, uh, person. So, yeah, me too. Thanks so much for your time, and and uh, and yeah, I, I did. I, again, I normally don't drink at home, but uh, there's a little rum uh, for your friend. So oh, nice, very nice. Yes, thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers.